to yeah. think that someone's going yeah. down the road to see a physio or any yeah. other doctor and, and yeah. getting care that's 17 years out yeah. of date, that's yeah. a scary thing for me. Yeah. Um, and that's something that well, one of the biggest drivers for mm. creating a podcast that's free, yeah. um, people can easily access, it's not behind a paywall, it's mm. not you know technical medical jargon, mm. um, and it helps to empower people. Welcome back to the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast, proudly brought to you by Bodylogic Physiotherapy. While we normally aim to make sense of science and bring evidence to your eardrums, this week's episode will help you make sense of who we are and why we're running a podcast. I sit down with Professor Peter O'Sullivan and Dr. JP Canero, and we share personal experiences of pain, explain why we encourage you to ask, is there more to pain than damage? And we explicitly share our conflicts of interest. Pete and JP are two of the most humble people I know and arguably world leaders in the musculoskeletal pain field, frequently being invited to present at international conferences and forums. So we are very, very lucky to be able to learn from them each week. A quick heads up, this episode needs a language warning as Pete recites word for word what a surgeon told him about his wrist after he broke it in several places. And let me tell you, they were far from empowering. As always, related infographics, references, and the transcript can be found at www.bodylogic.physio forward slash podcast, as well as video of this conversation. At the end of the episode, we also get to share some exciting resources we've been working on in conjunction with people from around the world who have a lived experience of persistent pain. So stay tuned for that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Empowered Beyond Pain. And remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? So, welcome to episode three of the podcast. Uh, This episode, we thought we would do a, why are we doing a podcast? But before we do that, um, lots of these people that are listening might not actually have any idea who we are. So, I thought it'd be a good idea to introduce ourselves uh, and then speak about why we're doing a podcast. We could do it. We could introduce each other. Well, we can do that. Yeah, let's How do about that. Because so, I know if he introduced himself, he won't say what's <laughs> he won't say the real story. Exactly. <laughs> and I think you two are too humble to even uh, start actually properly introducing yourselves. So that's a good yeah. idea. Uh, would you like to start? Yeah, so JP, <laughs> ooh, far out, Brazilian. <laughs> Speaks Portuguese, primary language. Hairstylist. Hairstylist, <laughs> yeah. Um, came to Australia oh, a long time ago. How long ago was that? Yeah, 15 yeah. years ago. Did his basic degree, then did his um, master's in biomechanics, then came to Australia, learned English, learned English, did his exams again to get registered in Australia. Am I right? Yep. Um, did dishwashing to catch a bit, a bit of English so he could learn English, <laughs> then did his postgrad uh, in sports physio mm-hmm. at Curtin. Uh, and then uh, started working clinically, but also doing different research, and then came on board with us here at Biologic, um, and uh, kind of went on a pathway, clinical pathway, and then a research pathway, where he was involved with a lot of research projects, um, and then did his clinical specialization, and was a bit bored at that stage, so thought he'd do a PhD, (laughs) Uh, and um, particularly looking around uh, pain and pain-related fear, uh, and now he's doing a postdoc, so he's got these two roles where he's postdoc fellowship, um, finishing off some work around some work around back pain, but mm-hmm. also in the arthritis, uh, linked to a um, 
research program that we're involved in, and then as a director at BodyLogic here, um, uh, which is wonderful. So uh, what is he? Great human being. <laughs> Number one, that comes uh, first. Awesome values. Values family. Uh, values friendship. Uh, trustworthy. Humble. Super hardworking. Super clever. Bloody good clinician. Awesome researcher. Like, what? what is that? It's a full package. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it all. My wife would have said it better. <laughs> and a dad. <laughs> yes. Exactly right. And a husband. Yeah. Very lucky man. Yeah. So, is that a reasonable summary? That is a very reasonable <laughs> summary. He knows you well. And <laughs> bilingual. Yeah. I, I yeah. couldn't have done that. <laughs> so, would you like to introduce Pete then? Yes, I'll absolutely. Leave <laughs> so, Peter is, um, is a Kiwi, so born in New Zealand. Most Kiwis that I met so far, they are very nice people, very easygoing, clever, down to earth, uh, and that's pretty much how I see Pete. And so Pete was is a clinician at heart, uh, very very interested in you know providing the best care for people. So he is uh, interested in his patients, uh, not only that they get better, but that they enjoy the things that they want to do in life. And he is very good at facilitating that process. So about 20 years ago, you came from New Zealand. Uh, so he trained in New Zealand. Uh, 30, actually. 30. <laughs> Oops. That's speaking my age, right? <laughs> I wouldn't let that one slide. Some people said I just got out of school and went straight to Australia. <laughs> so around 30 years ago, uh, he came to Australia. Uh, interestingly enough, with a similar intention of coming and doing a postgrad here. Uh, and he did his postgrad, did very well and started working with some of the big names of um, physiotherapy in Australia and very quickly became a lecturer in the postgraduate program. So very early on he was doing his clinical work and working in the university translating that uh, that knowledge to other clinicians uh, and then he embarked on a master's degree that developed onto a PhD and that was a uh, very fascinating clinical journey for him that uh, paralleled or some would say ignited a shift in the way that our profession was working at the time uh, and moving on from just hands-on work to more understanding motor control and how we could you know get people to change their behavior to um, improve their function and reduce their pain <clears throat> so he had a seminal paper published in 97 around that work uh, and that started a lot of questions of how humans behave, basically. And a lot of that work has been kind of um, developed in the clinic from seeing patients, trying to understand um, how, they, how they think, how they work, how they behave with their bodies, and taking that to a lab to experiment with people in pain, people without pain and seeing, can we modify this? Can, is there a relationship between what they're doing and their pain and their function? So that basically reflects a very curious mind uh, with the best interest at heart. And so his work in the clinic and, and research is basically patient-centered. Um, and that shows in all the work that he's been doing. And I think one of the key characteristics that I think of Pete is that he sees himself as, a, as an enabler, not only of his patients, but also of 
every single person that gets in touch with him. So he tries to get the best out of people and he facilitates that. It's never about him. It's always about creating a path. And, you know, you talk about the knowledge of, a, of building a kind of a forest around you where, you know, you have lots of people working together as a team and we are stronger as a team. And that reflects on, you know, yourself and, and me as uh, his PhD students and working here in the practice. That's what we see on a day-to-day basis. That's the peak that we know. Um, so he continues to challenge himself. Uh, and probably one of the, one of the many but key moments that I've seen in public was back in 2009 or 2011, maybe, at the APA conference, where he stood up as a keynote speaker at the Australian Pain um, Physiotherapy Association conference. And he basically said, look, this is how I used to think. And my patients and new research, not only from our group, but from across the world, changed the way I think. So from now on, I would say that the words that I used here are inadequate, and this is how I'm thinking. So it was a, it was a pretty um, strong point in the history of the profession. And a lot of people felt a bit aggrieved by that because they're going, well, that's how I thought my whole life, and now I'm changing. So that adaptability, that flexibility... Uh, is what is really cool. And I remember doing one of my, our first research projects and, you know, I was going, you know, the results, are, we hypothesized what we're going to find and we didn't find that. And I was like, oh, shit, we didn't find what we wanted. And, <laughs> and he's going, what are you talking about? This is wonderful. Have we found what we thought? We wouldn't have learned as much. And that really stuck with me. So every time we get our results, I, you know, you have your hypothesis and you want to feel clever that you you know, you, you found Correct. what you wanted. Yeah. Um, but that to me just demonstrates this flexibility, uh, this enablement and this uh, interest in developing uh, patients and researchers. So similar to what you said, uh, uh, when, I, when I came to Australia and I met Peter, I knew his work or I tried to know his work with the limited English that I had. <laughs> um, and that reflected a lot of how I thought. Um, and, but then when I met him, I met this incredible human being that was, uh, you know, very welcoming and very warm and that facilitated a lot of the pathway uh, for me. Um, and, and we built a really strong friendship and we have very similar values. And as Pete said, we both value our families, our friends. We care for our patients. We want people around us to be... Um, as developed as they can. Uh, we are now partner, uh, partnering the business, uh, but our minds and hearts are centered at developing the best that we can for our patients and building up um, people that can best care for their patients as well. And this is another example of that, where you know mm-hmm. you initiated this, this process and we're trying to convey this information to, to others. Yeah. So, so while we're on that, I think it's probably, so I, I certainly agree with what's been said. I think um, enabler is a really good term to use for you, Pete. Um, certainly that's been true for my career under you so far and certainly for JPs, but lots of other people as well. Um, but I thought maybe um, it would be helpful to contrast what you used to think and what you think now, just so we're explicitly sharing that with, with our audience who most of them are people in pain. Yeah. Um, well, that's what we're targeting. Um, so, can you contrast yeah. what what the, that used to be like? Yeah. So, um, is that on? Yep. Yeah. So, um, 
look, I, in my basic training uh, in New Zealand, that was a long time ago, so that was in the 80s. This um, <laughs> is making me feel really old now. Um, uh, the predominant view was, uh, you know, in terms of pain, was it was linked to structure, which is a very, very common view still in society. It's like if you're in pain, something's damaged, something's broken, something needs to be fixed, or there's something wrong with your body that's out of alignment or your posture's this or that. And I can remember um, uh, in my first day as in physiotherapy school in Dunedin, Otago, Dunedin, uh, we had to strip down to our jocks and we had a posture photo taken and I was told that my posture was terrible and I had to sway back and, you know, there were all these faults with wrong with my body, which I it's like AD. It's like I had no idea that there were all these things wrong with my body, but it was like my first introduction to physiotherapy was that I was not, you know, I had all these faults and I think fundamental to um, a lot of my training and, you know, that was all done in good faith. Don't get me wrong. Like they were just our beliefs. And I think what struck me in my basic training was that there was so little knowledge around pain. And I can remember in my last year of um, my course thinking, what have I done? Like actually all we're doing is regurgitating people's ideas because there's very little science and evidence behind this. And I had two thoughts. Either I'm either heading down a path of like going into a profession which is based on not a lot or here's an amazing opportunity to um, build a platform of knowledge from very little. Uh, and luckily I took that path because mm. I really, really nearly took that path because I applied for medical school before I even graduated um, because I was like, oh, I've got to get out of here because this is crazy. Um, and luckily I had a year where I deferred entry where I, got a, I just got a glimpse of something that kind of piqued my belief that something could be better within this space yeah um so i've kind of meandered away from what you asked but that was around um this idea that the body is you know pain is means you're damaged you need to fix it or you need to correct it or there's something at fault with the way that you're moving so there was no sense at all of a biopsychosocial understanding of pain at that point in time and then i kind of came to australia i've done a, all every workshop known to man i could crack any joint in anyone's body and quite well, I think, um, uh, you know, I got the prize for the best cracker. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and I realized, yeah, still can do it. Um, but I realized it was just such an impotent tool when faced with people who are disabled and stressed with pain. It was like, a, it was just a trick. And, and I, as, a, as a human being, I, I hated the fact that I could provide short-term pain relief and the person would come back the same. Or for some people, it may have flared them up. I had no idea why that was. Um, so I decided I either, it was another crossroads, either get out of the country or come go somewhere else. Um, so I, I kind of toyed with which way to go. And um, I was thinking research, PhD, there weren't good opportunities in New Zealand, but I was talked to someone who'd come to Perth. So I applied and got in here. And that was a really critical moment in my career, um, working with Bob Elvey, who was an extraordinary man, great clinician but also this really open mind lovely wonderful uh, communicator uh, but also a mind that could rapidly adapt with knowledge and it was just at that time of Max Sussman who you guys don't know who's passed on who was uh, like terrified me yeah he used to torture me he was doing a lot of pain science work and he was really early in his thinking 
um, out of the blocks, you know, like just twisting my brain around the role of pain science. And Max and I used to like tussle with each other and wrestle with each other. And I had the view that, you know, back pain was linked to instability and we just had to stabilize these muscles in the back and it would all be good. And he had a very different view around the whole, the role of the nervous system. And, and I think what we were seeing was two sides of a coin. I think Max saw the world through neurotransmitters and I saw the world through the lens of the person and I couldn't quite marry those two worlds up. Uh, I can see that way differently now. So I would see aberrant movement as some biomechanical fault uh, rather than a behavior where I would see the way someone moves is now a reflection of behavior and that may be a response to pain or pathology or fear or distress or fear learning or lots and lots of things. Mm. So that's kind of been this kind of a painful process of shift of change over time. But I have to say that fundamentally as a person, this view fits much better with my personality. I was really never felt comfortable with these rigid um, kind of um, uh, reductionistic ways of understanding pain because they never really made sense to me as an individual, but also for my patients, it never made sense. Where a kind of bias, like a social view of pain, makes total sense to me as an individual through my own lived experience and through working with others, and it obviously fits with where the evidence is. Yeah, it's a long route to answer your question. So, so to summarise that, um, would you agree that perhaps you know we used to look at, at pain as being this very unidimensional, where we can find it on a scan, it's related yeah. to structure, whereas yeah. now it's kind of a bit more. Well, actually, that's one part of a bigger picture of yeah. lots of different things. That yeah, can, could yeah, pa- that partly that, but pain absolutely may be absolutely related to structure. I mean, yeah. I I fractured my shoulder. Um, a couple of years ago and God, it was painful and I didn't know it was fractured. I had x-ray, it didn't show up and I was, I was skiing and I carried on skiing for two weeks and it was really, really, really sore and I could not move my arm and then I got it scanned a few weeks later and it was fractured. Mm. Now, that's a, that's a <laughs> clear <laughs> structural reason to be really, really sore, right? And that's what's tricky about pain but I've also had severe pain that's got, had nothing to do with structural damage the same amount of pain. I had screaming headaches. That, that is not because I've banged my head. So that's the tricky thing about pain is you can have terrible pain that's linked to structural damage and terrible pain that's linked to some wind-up in the nervous system. And then you can have life-threatening conditions that are associated with no pain at all. Mm-hmm. And that's the crazy and wonderful thing about pain is that you can have an absolute threat like i had a bunch of pulmonary emboli no pain i just couldn't breathe mm. and I, I felt no pain i just like couldn't breathe but it didn't hurt probably the most life-threatening event i've ever had was something that had no pain and i've had lots of other painful events that are not life-threatening at all that were terribly painful and, and that's kind of interesting because as a lived experience the thing that was most likely to knock me off didn't feel anything. Yeah. And the yeah. things that were most painfully distressing were not life-threatening at all. So yeah. before we, because I actually want to talk about some personal experiences with pain because I think that shapes our beliefs and, and our trajectories somewhat as well. Hang on a second. We haven't introduced you. I was going to just that. <laughs> before we go into that, okay. I think it's time to, um, for me to jump on the podium. So you guys can share it if you want to. I'm happy to kick it off because I think we 
We have an interesting meeting. Yeah, we did. So, um, so you grew up in the hills up in Perth. Yep. Um, and then you did physio and you did your honours with Leo Ng. Mm-hmm. Um, did a pretty cool honours degree. And then you went to Queensland. And I ran a workshop in Queensland a few years ago and there was this young fella there who was in the workshop asking a few great questions and then I needed a ride at the airport and you offered me the ride. And in that ride, we talked and you said you had an interest in research and I asked you what it was and you weren't quite sure or where you were going to do it and I said there might be an opportunity. And so that kind of, that little passing moment of a ride at the airport tilted your trajectory and you came back here uh, and joined our research team and, you know, primary supervisor Peter Can and our group at Curtin. Um, and then you've been working here clinically as well and doing a super cool project um, uh, looking at um, the relationship between pain and, uh, and activity limitation and movement. Um, posture as well. And posture. So it's yeah. a big questions. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I think... I think the thing that struck me about you, which is why I um, advocated for you for that project, is I saw a creative brain, uh, an interested brain, so like someone who was had, had, was creative and flexible um, and um, very interested in the question, but also caring and, and uh, interested in the person. And they're not that common, those combinations. Someone was asking me the other day about what made a really good clinician. And I said it's someone who really deeply cares, um, but it's also someone who's adaptable, who can self-reflect, who can look back on an event and go, oh, my God, I screwed up, or that didn't work, or what was it? So that kind of self-learning process. And, and I could see a little bit, I'm not saying that, I could see a little bit of what you were like, which reminded me of what I was like at a much younger stage in my career, of uh, this mind that was just hungry to learn. And, yeah. and that, that's something I, I really value about the way you operate. Yeah. And, and you're fearless about giving something a crack and you're happy to fall over and get up and give it a go again. And that's great, yeah. I reckon, because that's what learning is. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't learn to ski without falling over. Exactly right. Yeah. Cool. So enough. And I, and I think a key thing as well that, <clears throat> that um, struck me in your cab is your initiative. So you have a lot of initiative and you, um, you know, are thinking of, the group and thinking about bringing other people uh, with you in that in that journey as well, mm-hmm. uh, and also when we see patients together or when or we talk about tough cases, as Pete said, you you're happy to get feedback and you're happy to to adapt and change and grow, and I think that's a great uh, characteristic of you know developing as a clinician and, and as a person. Yeah, thanks guys. Um, I appreciate that. But enough of the niceties. We're, we're here to talk about um, <laughs> why we're doing this podcast for, for the people that are listening. Um, mm. But like I said before, I think, can we just quickly share some personal experiences with pain? So you've shared your, this is one of many for you, Pete, and, and I've mm. got a long history as well, but I'll mm. pick the most uh, uh, influential one for me. Is there anyone, any more that you want to share in terms of experiences with pain? Yeah, I, pain's interesting, I reckon, because um, the things that are most, um, have the most significance are the things that are most threatening, I reckon. And um, I've had le- heaps of different pain experiences. Um, probably one of the ones, and I, it's, I, I could pick a number of these, but one of the ones that struck me was I had a, um, 
like a big fall um, and badly fractured my wrists a number of years ago, like 18 years ago. Um, and it was a, it was a complex uh, fracture of my joint. So I had punched the joint and split and fragmented and it was all sitting out here. And I knew, knew as soon as I got up, I had a deformed arm and it didn't move. And I was going, that for my job, and probably I was working a lot more with my hands back then, that was a massive issue because I was like going, shit, that is not what a physio wants. <laughs> that was my first thing that went through my head. It's like, that is not an injury a physio wants. And um, so I ended up having surgery with pins stuck through it. And the surgeon, the first thing the surgeon said to me was, your wrist is fucked mm. when I came out. Because <laughs> I said, oh, I was your wrist. your wrist is fucked. You're going to end up with arthritis. It's good that you're embarking on an academic career because your clinical career is gone. Strong words. That was, the, that was what I was told. We need a, and, a language warning on this. And, yeah, sorry about <laughs> that. But it, that is an absolute, that is an absolute quote. quote. So that was not an interpretation. And, and, and my first gut reaction to that um, was, I, I, I don't own that. that yeah. I will not own that. <laughs> so I was also told to take three months off work. And I had a wait list of like two months or three months. <laughs> so I took a week off and I remember sitting at home with excruciating pain in my wrist um, and just having a week of feeling completely tortured of having this pain and having nothing to occupy my brain apart from these words that have been given to me and this experience that this part of my body that I'd used and trusted, I'd rock climbed, I'd mountaineered and I'd mountain biked and I'd used my hands and I could work with my hands to manipulate and feel tissue and touch people and this is this broken part of my body that was kind of cast in the wastebasket. Mm. That was horrible. So after a week, <laughs> I went back to work, I had my arm in a sling and pins coming out and I just worked with one hand and I realized I could do all my job with one hand. And like, and the patients, we <laughs> bringing them in, hang on a second, what's, what's going on here? Like I'm coming to you and paying for your care and you've got one hand. How does that work? Do I get it like a 50% discount or something? <laughs> but I think it forced me to work differently. Yeah. I'm like, going, well, I can do my job with it with one hand. I don't need to do all that stuff I was doing before, so I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to give that a crack. So actually, it was a great opportunity to, to say to me, I'm not taking three months off being sick. I'm going to do my job. I will adapt to do my job with one hand. Uh, and that forced me to kind of change a whole bunch of the ways I practice. It's a bit like coronavirus and go on telehealth. Mm-hmm. It was a bit like that moment. And then as soon as I got my um, pins out, I had this emaciated arm. I can remember looking at it, trying to move my wrist, and it was just it was just horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. And every time I moved, it crunched and grated. And, and I just had this – I gave myself a picture of a healthy wrist. I'm going, I'm going to picture a healthy joint. And I just kept that wrist moving and I just kept on moving it and I went back to work and I started using my hands and I started doing things and I, it was swollen, chronically swollen. It was crepitous and my wife was just going, give you a bloody risk at break. You know, you just don't stop moving it. And I just kept on doing that and it would ache every night. I'd go to bed, it would just ache and I'd have put hot packs on it. It was chronically inflamed. I've probably overdone it. Um, and then after two years, 
all the pain went away and my wrist was fully mobile and I, it has never hurt me since. And that was 18 years ago. <laughs> or 16 years. No, yeah. more than that. It was more 20 years ago. Uh, 98, in fact. It was a long time ago. So uh, 22 years ago. So that was a really powerful moment for me of going... The impact of negative health information can be absolutely devastating. Yeah. But the power of the mind and of behavior can alter processes. And the human body is extraordinary if you give it the right mindset and the right environment. Uh, and that probably that experience has emboldened me to be courageous when I work with people with pain, even when in the face of structural imperfection. Yeah. I reckon. Yeah. That's cool. JP? <laughs> yeah, it's always a learning experience, isn't it? When you yeah. have a pain. Yeah. So I have, um, I probably have two events. One which was traumatic. I was, um, I had a, had an accident and I broke my leg. I had a spiral tip fib fracture. And similar to your wrist, when I looked at it, I knew it wasn't good because <laughs> it was pointing in the wrong direction. Um, and it was, you know, quite a distressing time. And I had a surgery. Uh, surgery was a success, according to the surgeon. Um, and and after that, that process was you know gradually going back to using the leg. But at that time, I was um, there was other stuff happening in my life that were it was a bit distressing. And at that point, having that break wasn't wasn't ideal uh, financially and and other affairs. And I remember getting some really uh, bad news one day. And actually, I was sitting at your house at your couch with my leg up mm-hmm. and got the news at night and in the morning I just I had breakfast and then I had raging leg pain, mm-hmm. pins and needles, tingling, shooting pain, burning and I remember sitting there and thinking there is nothing that I've done that could have caused this. This was like a few weeks down the track. This was not an infection. This was nothing else. The only thing that changed is that I got some really distressing news mm-hmm. plus the whole context of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really stuck with me, uh, with that, such a significant body response and so felt in your body. And I had every right to think if I was a complete naive patient, I had every right to think that the screw just broke or something went wrong or my leg is broke again or whatever. And I was soon after starting to put some weights on it. Um, so that resolved cause I, you know, I looked at that situation, I'm going, the stress is what's distressing me, and that's my body responding to it. I'm not going to pay attention to it. And that very soon resolved, that discomfort. Then I rehabbed myself, got back to walking, was working, um, went back in the gym and started doing a bit heavier than I should have. And then I developed this leg pain. Didn't have an incident. I just was quickly built up my, my load. And I developed this, this leg pain. And that was around the time that I was doing my specialization. And, and that came and went for a little while. But one of the key things around that time on reflection is that the way we were working in the practice was a very open-minded way about pain, which is kind of how we're discussing here. And I was getting various feedback, feedbacks from across the country when I was treating patients I was being watched and observed and given feedback on the way I treated. And because that was around sports, there was a, a biomedical view was way stronger. Um, and I was constantly being reminded of this 
structural problems that we have and this attention we need to give to pathology. And if you do identify the pathology, the pathway for management is easier and it's clear and you just, it's almost like following a recipe. You know, it's a disc pathology, you do this. Nerve compression, you do that. Uh, it's a fracture, you do X. Um, and at that time, I remember having these, this divided mind. Like half of my brain was going, you know, pain is a multi-sensory experience. Mm. Every dimension, it's an expression of your health. Every factor influences. And the other part of my brain was going, well, it's your structure, it's your back, it's your disc. And I can remember kind of falling into these protective habits and having this image in my back of this red hot uh, injured body part in my back that I had no idea where it came from because I never had a scan. And we had chats around this. And I had to make a decision at one point of going, I either trust this or I don't. And that was a very divisive moment. There was nothing else that changed apart from just going, being true to my uh, understanding of pain and behaving as such. And the interesting thing is that during that process, when you're receiving feedback that is uh, different to what you receive in the place that you're working, um, and then you have an exam, you have to make a decision on how you're going to work. And at that point, I made a decision of going to this the specialist exam, which is a pretty rigorous process in Australia. Very. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and practicing the way that I believe is the way a specialist should be practicing. And with my true values of how I see pain and the management of pain. And if that wasn't enough to pass the exam, I was comfortable with that process. And those decisions were around the same time. And when I made a decision, I eradicated those behaviors. I used my body confidently. I went through the exam. I did what I had to do. And it was just a very interesting interface between this old structural, traditional biomedical training that I had being brought to attention mm. when you had a felt experience in your body. And I had the great advantage of having had training on the other hand, on the other way of thinking about pain, but also of being talking to clinicians such as Pete, who support that view. Now, if you put yourselves in the shoes of a patient who jump from one clinician to another and they have that information reinforced and they don't have the knowledge or the power uh, to go against that decision, it's a pretty tough place to be. Mm -hmm. And that decision made a significant change in how I, I behaved in relation to my body, in relation to protecting my body or using my body. And, and I, I think that's in the clinical encounters that we have with patients, understanding where they're coming from and in a supportive manner trying to demonstrate to them a different way of, of thinking if the structure is actually not the problem. Um, it's, a, it's a delicate process, but it's a very rewarding and interesting process. Yeah. Um, and it, it, we have a really significant role in providing care for patients in that way. Yeah. Ah, sorry. I was just going to say probably the other situation that I had is that I, when I was... Uh, six years old, I was diagnosed with perthes, which is a, um, in a vascular necrosis of the head of the femur. And I remember seeing three top um, uh, orthopedic surgeons in, in Brazil. And the three of them said, look, man, uh, your childhood is, is gone. You can't use the leg. You should be lying in bed with plaster. 
what kids usually do, their parents just paint the ceiling and change the color, put some pictures so you can see stuff like that for the next couple of years. Uh, the other guy said, we put a hip replacement. And the third guy said, just see how you go. And before you're 40, you, we replace your hip. So that was really negative, powerful information coming from the top of the tree of the medical um, you know, uh, pathway. And I remember my parents sitting there and they're walking out of those, of those consults and going, that cannot be true. That cannot be true. The body cannot be so fragile and we have to do something else. And we, my mom did some research, we did, uh, she went after a lot of information and we took a different approach. And we spoke to another doctor and he said, look, what they're saying is what the journals are saying, but look, I reckon what you gotta do, you gotta use common sense, uh, narrow your experiences in childhood. So you can't run, you can't jump, you can't play soccer. So basically I was a crappy Brazilian. And <laughs> 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 yeah, so I got kicked out of the country. Um, and, and then you have to uh, gradually develop yourself and get yourself some strong mus muscles. And he said, I'll be lying to you if I say that your, your, he said, your hip's gonna look crap, but I don't know how it's gonna be in the future. Keep me posted. And, and that was a very supportive and not very common way of, of managing a situation like that. And I, I went through my physio training and he was the head of the orthopedic of the oh. hospital that I was doing my placement. So we had conversations all the time and he wanted to know what I was doing. And in parallel to all of this, it brings the social support because what I was asked to do as a six, eight, 10, 11 year old, not to run, not to jump, not to do all this stuff. It's pretty much impossible when you live on the street with five other boys doing all that stuff. And my mom at the time, she called all the parents of those kids and the kids, and they said, this is what he needs to do to have a healthy adolescence and adulthood. You can help him or um, you can just allow him to do whatever he wants. And I basically had all these five friends who are friends to me up until today who basically told me what I couldn't do. So I was like nurtured by the social uh, support helping me to do like, you can do this, you can do that, and oh, let's try this now. And, and, and that was really important because uh, a problem that I had wasn't uh, put aside, was validated, was mm -hmm. acknowledged, was supported. And that was really important. And we see people with pain where we can have support that is um, negative, where they don't let people do anything, you know, let me carry the shopping for you, don't lift anything heavy, watch your back. Or it could be supportive in a way of going, no, I was there with him in the consult. He said, you've got to be active, you've got to sleep well, so let's go to bed early, let's eat well, and let's exercise. So that is a really important thing. So that negative health information and understanding that patients receive that and if they own that information or not uh, is a really important thing that we, that we have to do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And those personal experiences, they, they help us um, in our consults as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, they're, they're hugely valuable. It kind of reminds me of it. Um, one of my um, favorite memories growing up. Um, so I've fractured several um, parts of my body, um, but one particular that um, comes to mind was playing football, um, hurt my hand. And um, I you know, told my mum at the time and said, you know, I've got a sore hand. And, and she said, yeah, it'll be all right. No worries. Like, it'll get better. Don't worry too much about it. A couple of days went by, hand was still sore told mum again she's like it'll be fine like just keep doing what you're normally doing 
Um, two weeks went by and, and my hand was still sore and it was a bit swollen, a bit um, blue. And, and she's like, oh, well, let's go to the doctor. And, and we ended up getting an x-ray and there was two fractures there. Now, my mum feels terrible for this. Um, and it's not a reflection in any way on her. But for me, actually, uh, I'm quite glad that that's the path that she took. That she didn't, you know, baby me, didn't protect me, didn't shelter me. Uh, and and uh, to me, that's shaped this whole narrative that there is more to pain than just damage, mm. um, which is kind of what I wanted to talk about. We say this at the end of each of our episodes, but, yeah. but can you kind of summarize what, what that means? Why do we say that at the end of yeah. the episodes? Look, um, you were both part of a, um, a wonderful talk that we heard last night. Mm. So, uh, Nadia... Um, Clem's work at Curtin, which talked about people who had a knee replacement, and it talked about these different pathways that people go down. So we have a great pathway or a not a good pathway, and the vulnerability, oh, it, it touches on what you were saying, JP, around um, people who can have pain and kind of move on in their lives, uh, people who've got good social support, people who've got high levels of self-efficacy or self-belief or self-confidence, they can adapt they can um, shift the way they think about a problem to adapt to it in a different way um, where the, vulner- the vulnerability factors are really around poor social networks, um, um, a negative mindset around the body, um, getting stuck, having no strategies, like hitting roadblocks and no, having no support to kind of get around those roadblocks. And that could be health support or social support. Um, and own personal resources and that's why good health care is so important because when you hit a roadblock and that's what I say to my patients um, I had one today it's just like I'm just being driven mad but this pain at the end she goes I feel so much better didn't do anything to her we just talked through a strategy I said why do you feel better she goes I have a plan I had no plan I was stuck Um, I now can see it I've got a way forward and it's like we see these pathways where people just get stuck and there are so many pitfalls in the health system where the focus is on your damaged body part, not about, it's, 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 a, it's a reductionist kind of negative um, sickness mindset rather than a health mindset. So your body is like another discussion today about the brain's like a pharmacy. You can open up the, you know, the analgesias mm-hmm. Or you can create pain drugs, yeah. you know, like that's all in your brain. Um, uh, and, and that capacity is kind of how you unpack that capacity. So I think you've heard both of these scenarios where pain can be related to damage, yeah. but there's so much more to pain than damage. <laughs> uh, and, and that is about how you understand it, how you respond to it, how you support it with it, how you adapt to it. Uh, how you manage it and your pathway forward. And that's what this podcast is about, is to kind of share narratives of, of hope for people. It's not in any way to say that structure is not related to pain, because it very often is, but it's just one bit of the puzzle. And, and I think when it's the only bit of the puzzle, that's a, a massive trap. But the other thing is that the body has this amazing healing potential, this amazing ability to adapt this amazing ability to kind of, you know, um, uh, to respond to difficulties in a positive way if you have the support networks, mindset, strategies to go that path. Yeah, it's cool. And it opens up a whole a whole new um, plethora of options to help get better, right? If you just yeah. think that pain's related to damage, then you've got one option. Yeah. You've got very limited options. But actually understanding that that's a part of yeah. the bigger picture. Yeah 
opens up the doors to say, okay, there's lots of different things yeah. that can help with this. And I think what struck me as well with Nadia's presentation last night, getting better is not pain-free. No. Mm. And we often measure better by what's your pain scale. Mm. So I have pain every day. It's like part of my life, right? But it doesn't bother me. It doesn't keep me awake at night. It doesn't stop me doing stuff. It doesn't in any way inhibit anything I do in my life. That's the measure of pain in my mind. Um, and that's about um, the meaning of it, the bothersome of it, the, the impediment that it places on you. And I think we get, need to get away with this. A measure of pain is on a numerical rating scale mm. is what pain is because you can have six out of 10 pain. So I feel every weekend when I go mountain biking with you <laughs> and it's pleasurable, right? But it's still painful, but it's got a different meaning. Yeah. But you can have two out of pain, two out of ten pain. That drives you mad yeah. if you don't understand it or have a way of distracting yourself from it or moving on from it. Mm. Yeah. You talked about before that, um, you know, potentially if you have some negative healthcare experiences that mm. that can really push you down a trajectory. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I think for me that, um, that kind of partly highlights one of the reasons that I wanted to, to do this podcast mm. was – to um, so maybe you know there's some healthcare practitioners out there that are whether they don't know or they're, they're unable to provide the most up-to-date care based on research. Now you guys are lucky and we're lucky in that we have our foot in both kind of camps. Mm. We work in mm. research but also we work in clinical practice. Mm. Um, so we have that ability to try and transfer that and translate mm. that to the real mm. world. Mm. It's quite a scary study that showed that there's a, about a 17-year lag for mm. health or, or research mm. to get um, from universities to the Put real world. Practice, yeah into practice mm. and, and for me that's just not really acceptable we mm. need to be doing better to, to yeah. think that someone's going yeah. down the road to see a physio or any yeah. other doctor and, and yeah. getting care that's 17 years out yeah. of date that's yeah. a scary thing for me yeah. um, and that's something that well, one of the biggest drivers for mm. creating a podcast that's free yeah. um, people can easily access it's not behind a paywall it's mm. not you know technical medical jargon mm. um, and it helps to empower people mm. um, so I was wondering whether you guys would, would love, is there anything else you want to add to that to, as to why we've decided to do a podcast? And we're doing this you know, in our own time. Um, and it's probably important to mention that we, you know, in terms of conflicts of interest, when we're not getting paid to do this. Um, so, yeah, could you talk about conflicts of interest and um, why we're doing a podcast? Sure. So um, as Please. I said before, um, I... Work in clinical practice, so my income comes from seeing patients, and I also I'm also a partner at Biologic Physiotherapy, and that's a it's a clinic where we see patients and we provide a, a, a physiotherapy service. Uh, and the other part of my income is from working in academia as a research fellow at Curtin. Uh, probably the only other thing that I would have income from is when we are. Um, invited to present uh, and do clinical workshops where we get paid by either an institution that is providing service to their clinicians or a group of uh, clinicians that want to uh, have access to that information. So they will be my conflicts of interest. Yeah. Um, when you say in terms of why we do this and you know the, uh, there's more to pain than tissue damage, I saw a lady that highly intelligent, 50-year-old, um, uh, who has been dealing with pain for over 25 years 
and she said, look, I asked her, what's your expectation of today? What would you like to get out of today? And she said, look, I don't know. I've, I've, I've been suggested to come here, but I've seen 25 years. I can guarantee you it's more than, more than 25 clinicians. Mm. And I've done lots of scans. My scan shows nothing. So I get it. It's not in my structure. My structure really hurts. When I touch it, it hurts. It hurts my back. I can show you every day, same place. So it's not in my mind. It's in my body. But the scan tells me, they say, you can't explain your pain. And she said, how about my pain experience? And she goes, I don't understand how I can experience something that the scan can't talk for it. And, and that was quite a, 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 a compelling question. Mm. And there's a lot, there are a lot of patients out there that have the same um, difficulty in understanding. And I, we have a duty of care, I think, of, uh, uh, we, as you said, we are lucky we have access to all this information, some that we produce, some that we have access to. We are on Twitter getting information left, right, and center. We can, we have access across the paywall through the university. So we have a lot of knowledge that we can get our hands into. Um, I think we have a duty to translate that to patients. And not only the patients that can afford and can come to, to where we work to pay for a service, but also for patients that are sitting at home and potentially in Brazil or New Zealand or elsewhere, mm. to listen to this and then go to their clinicians and go, hey, what do you think about this? So this lady today, she's being stuck in a place where she's following all these rules, which are very common rules uh, imposed by, um, to us through our, through our training. Uh, over the last 17 years probably uh, and a lot of these rules they have been challenged um, and she's she's really uh, she's got a lot of self-efficacy she goes to seek for information and she tries really hard and she is can't get out of that uh, out of that place you know she had a lot of other factors in her life such as stress such as putting on weight um, working a highly pressured job uh, not having a lot of social, social support, having significant events happening um, over the last couple of years when, despite the fact she had pain for 25 years, over the last couple of years is when the pain became really unbearable. So all those factors, is, they reflect, um, they can influence her pain experience and they're way beyond her scan. So in her case, it was a very clear case where tissue damage wasn't even part of the picture. Because she had a very good-looking spine, a surprisingly good-looking MRI for a 50-year-old. Now you look at all Hang the. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Based Sorry. on normative data and research, <laughs> not my belief. Uh, so you look at that, like that is not tissue damage, and she said that herself. But you go, you know, you haven't been as active as you used to be. You put on weight. You work in a high-pressure job. You don't feel as much stress. Uh, but your body may feel it, you know, your sleep is altered. And so there's lots of factors that we know that can influence how, um, how your body responds. And you mentioned before about having options. And I remember when I, um, you know, look at my training, you know, at the time in Brazil, uh, I did my master's in biomechanics because I wanted to know more about the mechanics of the body so I could fix the impairments to facilitate people to get better doing what they wanted to do. So my fundamental uh, tr training was around pain equals tissue damage. And I remember my lectures were around, the name of the lectures were, the name of the pathologies we're going to study. 
So when I came over here, I came to get better in manual therapy because then I could actually, you know, twist the source of the problem and fix it. And I came here and Australia was going in this shift where it was like, you know, hands-on heavy, but also motor control. And, and it was a really interesting time and it really challenged my beliefs at that time. But I remember when I was um, more formally presented this biopsychosocial view of pain, although that was very challenging, I'm going, hang on a second. So does that mean that my management now includes, um, you know, talking to people about this sleep optimization? It talks about uh, stress management. It talks about being physically active. So out of a sudden, my toolbox just increased. And I had all these factors, which of many are modifiable, and we can help people to interact with them. And if we take pain out of the picture and we put another uh, health problem, such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, all these factors are present there. So it sounds like the pain world is just taking a bit longer catching to up. catch up, especially the, the beliefs around the community. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, Kev, that's a very roundabout question to your no, that's fine. answer to your question. Mm. That's good. Conflicts of interest. Yeah. So um, I obviously, you know, part of my job is um, professor at Curtin Uni, um, which is, you know, I work with an amazing team of researchers and uh, very, very fortunate. I, I kind of, I'm one small cog in a kind of piece of wonderful machinery. Um, uh, and then the other role here is clinical uh, and then co-directed with JP of Body Logic. Um, I made a decision uh, and it was a it was a very clear decision, actually. I can remember grappling with this um, probably around um, uh, maybe 20 years ago um, of whether I would use my knowledge to create an educational business um, because I could see there was a lot of money you could make through education. And I, and I remember, because I came from New Zealand, and there was the McKenzie system. And I remember going to Robin McKenzie's workshops, and I don't want to take away from the contribution that he made, mm. um, because he was a pretty impressive guy in what he did. Mm. And innovative, although a lot of the theories were not, have not been validated. But a lot of the concepts around self-management, self-care, I think were way ahead of the game. Uh, but it was all kind of wrapped up in some kind of scary language and... Um, and very much around structural models of pain, uh, and and I'm, you know to be fair, I think an element of the McKenzie approach has shifted. But I can remember um, sitting in some of those workshops, and um, and he was a brave guy. He brought um, patients into his workshops, but he's a very strong person, and and um, and I I was a young uh, questioning. Um, curious. fearless, curious person who put my hand up way too many times and got slapped down. And, and I can remember um, thinking that I didn't, I didn't, there was this sense of guruism within our, within our profession where there's someone at the top, it's like a pyramid, uh, where the person at the top was the king and they just told all the others what to do and the others just followed and didn't question. And I really, that fundamentally grated on me. Um, so I can remember a very clear time where I had, there was this kind of like tipping point where I could have gone down this pathway of gone, you know, what? Oh, I can make a lot of money out of education by educating physios. And I'm going, you know, it doesn't fit with me. 
It's not why I do what I do. Fundamentally, you know, knowledge is, and I could see there was a trap where if I started creating a business around knowledge, that would put me into a vice where I'm then constrained by business, not having this open world of learning. And so I made a deliberate decision at that time that I would not do that and that I will never do that in terms of, um, you know, a system. That This is a system. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I know within the cognitive functional approach to managing pain, a lot of people probably look at me as like I've got some business vested interest. But apart from running the odd workshop, and I've got to tell you, I have done very few in the last number of years, um, uh like we're not selling a product and, and in a sense you can't sell what it's a bit like um selling selling knowledge i think well you can sell it but this idea of creating knowledge to be shared mm. knowledge to be curious knowledge to create and i see knowledge as ongoing evolutionary not yeah. finite yeah so to constrain myself to a finite basis on which you sell as a product Fundamentally, that makes sense to me, um, which is why we've deliberately not gone down that pathway. Yeah. So that's a long answer to the <laughs> yeah to the to the to that question, but it is something I deliberately had to think about, and there were a lot of people pushing me to do it um, because they could see financial benefit for themselves. I think, and, and I really pissed a few people off by not going down that path. But I have absolutely no regret. Mm. that I didn't do that because it's allowed me to partner with a lot of other researchers who I don't think would have come near me with a barge pole if yeah. they saw I had a financial interest in the answer yeah. rather than having a curious mind to explore a question exactly, and then allow the answer yeah. to kind of update my learning and to evolve and change. So I think it was a really, really good yeah. um a decision a long time ago. In terms of the podcast, you know, as JP said, I've spent, um, you know, when I finished my PhD in 98, so I spent a lot of years. So what's that? 20, started in 94. 26. It's a lot of years, uh, 26 years of doing research and publishing papers. And, and like you say, every day I'm hearing people go, why has no one told me this? Yeah. That kills me. It's like, shit, we've been, we've spent so much time publishing stuff that is never, never accessed by the public. That is something that is fundamentally wrong. (laughs) So if this podcast can reach people and to give them a taste of what, um, what actually knowledge looks like and how that can apply to them in the real world, that's gold. Because the other thing is, it's often behind paywalls and it's not even readable. So a lot of the stuff we write has to be written in a scientific language that the average person would be absolutely, it's incomprehensible to mm. lots of people. So that's a massive issue for us as scientists to say, how do we make that knowledge applicable and um, understandable. And I think that's a beautiful part about working in clinical practice is we can have simple conversations with people to translate knowledge every day. So I was thinking about your 17-year thing, you know, 17 years to translate knowledge to practice. Well, I kind of um, see clinical practice is like my – it's a bit like road testing your vehicle all the time. And we're constantly retrialing new vehicles all the time. So if you come here, you're part of like an innovative 
road testing clinic <laughs> and if you're brave enough to be part of it and we'll be honest with you in that journey but in a, in a sense it's kind of like an iterative process of saying what is working and allowing our patients to be really honest with us to say hey that didn't work that was crap this didn't make sense that's how we can kind of learn as a partnership yeah yeah and and i guess the other thing is to one of the things we would like to, as you said, you know, trying to target people in pain, as well as clinicians that are helping people that are in pain, is that we would love to hear from them mm-hmm. and have their input. So this is not, uh, initially it's us presenting what we think it's, it's uh, important and interesting and necessary, but it would be great to get feedback from patients to get their answers, uh, their questions answered in a way that it makes sense to them. Because uh, we get asked lots of questions every day, and at times it seems like we, uh, um, some of the questions may seem trivial, and may seem like um, uh, difficult to be answered, uh, but they're so commonly asked to us that mm. it would be good to have a common narrative that we can pass that on and and have patients having access to it. Yeah, so we have set up an email for that. So um, you know, to in the spirit of getting questions from from mm. the listeners. Um, if, if they do have question, questions, they can email podcast at bodylogic.physio mm-hmm. um, and we've also put our feelers out through Twitter to mm-hmm. um, pick up some frequently asked questions as well. So mm-hmm. that certainly um, is plans in the, in the pipeline. Um, so I think we should wrap it up. Oh, that's been a good episode. Mm-hmm. This has been a, one that's been a little bit more about us and our journey and, yeah. and I guess what we stand for and why we're doing this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so yeah, thanks for your time, gents. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. So, there you have it. As you heard, we all have personal experiences with pain, and our main mission with this podcast is to empower you to live beyond pain. In addition to the conflicts of interest mentioned, we wanted to be clear what proudly brought to you by Body Logic Physiotherapy actually means. Put simply, podcasts aren't free to run, and we don't want to run advertisements as, unfortunately, Many businesses in health spread messages of vulnerability, fragility and fear, which, while arguably a good business model, isn't such a good healthcare model. Plus, we believe education should be free and uninterrupted. So in order for us to do that, Bodylogic Physiotherapy has kindly agreed to wear the costs associated with getting this evidence to your eardrums each week. As we also mentioned in the episode, if you'd like to ask questions or leave a voice message with the possibility of having your question featured on the podcast, send an email to podcast at bodylogic.physio. Finally, a quick announcement. We've been involved with some resources that highlight 10 scientific facts about low back pain and have worked with many prominent global patient advocates to record and share their stories. Well, these got approved and released by the British Journal of Sports Medicine, or BJSM, and next week we'll be discussing the behind the scenes of that popular paper. It's titled Back to Basics, 10 Facts Every Person Needs to Know About Low Back Pain. So Professor Peter O'Sullivan led that paper and it was co-authored by JP Canero, myself, Kevin Wernley, and many other great international researchers. We just recorded that episode and it's jam-packed with great information. We discuss how the core perhaps isn't as important as what we thought it was for low back pain, why perhaps you don't have to lift with a straight back, and why imaging needs to be taken with a grain of salt in persistent back pain. Fact you then, and remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage?
Please note, what you heard on this episode of Empowered Beyond Pain is strictly for information purposes only and does not substitute individualised care from a trusted and licensed health professional. If you would like individualised, high-value care for your pain, sports or pelvic health problem, head to the BodyLogic website and make an appointment. Theme music generously provided by Fervin and Cash.